Psalm 5, verse 1. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O God. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, broken, fallen people, with distress and distractions and so many obstacles to understanding your word. But your word is powerful. Your spirit can do an amazing work in our heart. And I pray that God, you would do that. You would work through my words, speak through your word as, as we read it and understand it. And I pray that your spirit would change us, would convict us of sin, help us to rejoice in sorrow, and find hope in your son. Pray that your spirit would change us in such a way that we're not the same person we are when we leave here. Your spirit would do an amazing work and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have an important question for you. How's your prayer life? How's your time alone with God? Have you ever had anybody ask you that? I hope you have. And I hope you gave an honest answer because it can be really easy to go, oh, my prayer life, it's good, I'm fine, everything's good, we're cool, cool. Everything's cool all of a sudden, all the time. It can be so easy to just throw that out. But I'd be willing to bet that we're not cool. Our prayer life is not fine. I honestly wonder how how you would feel and we would feel if, if somehow or another we were able to get a transcript of your prayers for the last month, just a written copy of your prayers and, and pass them out at church to study them and, and learn from the way you pray and be able to, to pray, kind of like we study Scripture in a way, but to study your prayers. How would that make you feel? Would you rejoice? Would you be embarrassed? 
I think I would be embarrassed by the lack of prayer on that list. By the trivial things I, I pray for and, and how easily my mind wanders. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we all have a deep desire and we see a deep need to, to pray better. We want to pray more often. We want to pray with more zeal and more passion. And we want to pray for what's important. But so often that's not the case in a fallen world, is it? We get distracted. We lose focus. And I wonder if there's ever been a time or a culture where it has been harder to be more prayerful than ours. Because we have so many things in our culture that drive us away from prayerfulness. We have so many things that distract us from the difficulties in life and numb us to our daily needs for God. I mean, just to name a few, technology for one. We think technology is the answer to everything, don't we? I mean, just give us a little more time, a little more technology, and we'll figure things out. Whether it's communication technology or, or medical technology. I mean, when you, you're sick and you go to the doctor or you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor, what's our first inclination? Is it to go to our knees in prayer? Or is it to get an MRI? And I'm not against MRIs. I've had them, and I'm thankful for them. But guys... MRIs are not the solution to the deepest problems in life. They don't help us when we find out what the problem actually is. They'll never give us peace and hope like only our God can. And we have other distractions, just the the busyness of life or this increasing sense of self-sufficiently. We can handle anything the world throws out at us. Just we'll make a checklist, we'll prioritize, we'll delegate, we'll get it done. Right? That's the way we work. And we're disconnected from our daily bread needs because the the store has plenty of bread. And we forget that Vons doesn't make wheat. God does. And the water company doesn't make water. God does. And we live in this world that blinds us from a daily sense of neediness before God. And therefore, it's hard to be prayerful. So what do we do? We throw in the towel. We say, it's fine. Let's just get past it. Or do we run to God's Word for hope and for help? And I believe we can do that and run to Psalm 5 and find out what prayer should look like in this fallen world. That's what David is going to teach us this morning. What should prayer look like in this fallen world? And I want to sum it up in one sentence for you. This is what I believe David wants to show us and teach us about prayer. Prayer, at its essence, is a cry to our God for help. It's a cry to the righteous judge for salvation through justice. It's a cry out to God in desperation because He's the only holy judge of this universe for salvation, for help, but also for justice to set things right. And that's what I want us us to see in this passage, and I want to break it down into four pieces as we do that. So the first thing we're going to see is David crying out to his God for help. Verses 1-3. through And then he praises God for his justice. And he praises him for being the judge. And then he petitions God. He requests for salvation through justice in verse 7 through 11, or 7 through 10. And in the end, he joyfully rejoices in the salvation that God will bring. He cries out to God, his holy judge, for salvation through justice. And then he rejoices. That's what we see David doing in this passage. So let me give you a little bit of background before we jump into these verses. And we can do that as we read the superscript. So read that with me here. 
First thing it says, to the choir master, for the flutes. And we learn here that this is intended for worship. It's not a historical record. It's not just something to entertain us. This is meant to be for God's people to worship corporately and privately. In fact, we have evidence that this was possibly used in the second temple period for the morning liturgy. People might have sang this hymn as they were walking in to worship God or walking home from that. So we can learn as well to worship God through this. And who wrote it? We find out in the next part. It's a Psalm of David. Like every psalm we've studied this summer so far, right? It's a psalm of David, and we don't know the context. It's not like Psalm 3 where we know he's on the run, he's in trouble from Absalom, and that's why he felt this way. And I kind of like that. I really do, because we won't be tempted to say, well, David just felt like that because of this reason. And I don't feel like that. No, we can apply it to ourselves in our circumstances and to the difficulties that we have in our own life. And that makes sense because this is a psalm of personal lament. A psalm of lament again. And we are right in the middle of five of them. From Psalm 3 to Psalm 7, they're all psalms of personal lament. And remember what that means. That means it deals with the struggles of life and the way that those struggles affect us. We've already seen the themes of sadness and fear and anxiety and anger and how to be that or do those things to the glory of God. But the psalm is not just lamenting. It's not just David being in distress and being sad. He actually gets to confidence in the end. So some people even call this a psalm of confidence because he moves through his distress to confidence in our Lord. And lastly, it's a, it's a morning psalm. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but we've been alternating, right, from morning to evening. Psalm 3 was a morning psalm. Last week, Psalm 4 was an evening psalm. And now we're back to a morning psalm. And next week we'll be in another evening psalm. And you know what's interesting about these morning psalms? Is they're a little bit more hopeful. But we get that, don't we? God's mercies are new every morning. And even if you're not a morning person, you, you know that you have a brand new start to the day. And sometimes at the end of the day, you're just like, gosh, what happened? God, I have so many regrets from today, and I'm, I'm lamenting what happened. And you're trying to find hope. And that's what those evening psalms help us do. But we're dealing with a morning psalm here, and David is going to rejoice. But before that, he's going to cry out to his God for help. So let's read verse 1 as he does that. He's going to cry out to God, his God, for help. Verse 1. Give ear or listen to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings or my thoughts, my meditations. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Now David calls out to God in three ways here. He actually uses three different ways of prayer. He calls out to him in words, which is normal, right? That's the way we pray. Using words. But then he actually says, my groanings, my, my meditation, my silent prayers. God, hear those too. And then he gets desperate. <laughs> and you can see that progression of, of slowly getting more desperate. And he just cries out to God at the end. It's like David saying, Lord, I lift my voice up to you. Hear my words. But they're not enough. I, I can't get the words to say what I want. I can't communicate my needs. So God, search my heart. Search my thoughts. Search my silent prayers and interpret this for me. It's not pride on David's part. He's not coming in saying, this is what I need. He's desperate. God, hear me. And then he cries out to God like a child calling to his parents. You know, I think we get that in this church, don't we? How many kids exited and 
And if you've never seen this in action, I encourage you, watch on a Sunday morning and especially watch the moms before or after church or before a grace group. They'll be talking and, and having a great time and in mid-sentence, they're talking and there's a cry across the room or, or right next to them. And then all of, the, all of them, just mid-sentence, they all just go, like, squirrel, you know, just right to that spot. And they, they pause, they, they figure out the problem, and the mom goes over there and, and picks the baby up and amazingly can interpret their cry. Oh, it's a, that's a sad cry or a, a hungry cry or an angry cry. And I'm just like, uh, just crying. I don't know. I don't get it. How do you see that? But moms, you, you are so in tune to your kids' needs, and you so delight to meet those needs that you've learned the language of their cries. You've learned how to provide for them, and that's exactly the way it is with our God. He knows the language of our cries to Him. But it's even on a bigger scale because this God is everywhere present with this whole being. And He knows everything. He'll never be too far out of reach or out of range. No matter how dark it gets, He's still there. He still hears us. And when we call to Him, He'll really listen. He won't just check him his, be checking His phone the whole time. He won't be too busy or too tired, or, or too distracted. And whether you use words or, or meditations, or all you can say is, help! God says, I heard you. I get that. I know just what you mean by that. Isn't it beautiful to know that our God hears us when we cry out to Him, just like David is crying out to Him. And who does He cry out to? Verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Oh, this is such a beautiful way to talk about God, and David loves this. He has it all over the Psalms. He's talking about God as his King, as his God, his Creator, the one who's sovereign and in control of everything, and the, the God who gives life. But remember, this is David here. This is the giant slayer. This is the one who's King of his little corner of the earth. There's no authority over him, but he's saying, no, no, there's a king over me. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and that's who I'm crying out to. But he's not just a stranger to David. He says he's my king and my God. This is the God of the covenants. This is the God of David's fathers. This is the God who's been faithful to David his entire life and will continue to be. Oh, guys, this is the essence of prayer. It's this combination of God's transcendence and His glory and His majesty, but also His eminence and His closeness to us. That's what prayer is, and that's what no other world religion can offer us. We worship a God who is holy and powerful and the sustainer of the universe and who condescends to dwell with His people. He's the great I Am, but the God of our fathers. He's the God of eternity, but the God of time. The God who is infinite and the God who is personal. And He's the God who is judge and the God who is Father. That's the God we worship. That's the God that David's crying out to. And by the blood of Christ, He is also our King and our God. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, the heart of the Christian faith is found in the personal pronouns of the Bible. So true. We get to say he's our king and our God, just like David, because of Christ. Verse 3 continues to cry out, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So here's that morning prayer we were talking about. 
And he's not just saying, Lord, in the morning I come to you, and I come to you repeatedly in the morning. What David is really saying here is that I come to you in the morning because this is the way I start my day. This is the way that I roll out of bed. I roll out of bed and I roll onto my knees because I know that I'm going to enter into a battle today. And Lord, I can't face this day without facing you without your help, without your guidance, without your love and mercy and encouragement in my life. I need to start the day with you. That's how David rolls out of bed in the morning. And look what he does, continue in verse 3. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. That can sound really weird. Is he going to church? What's he doing there? But the, the wording there is actually like to order or to organize. In Isaiah, it's used for a, a lawyer making his case. And it may be trying to say, well, you go before God. You don't go before God casually. You think about it. You organize your thoughts. You prepare yourself to enter into God's presence. But what the ESV really does a good job at, this is the word also used for priests in the temple. When they're organizing the morning sacrifices and the showbread, when they're getting ready for the morning worship. And David is saying, Lord, I come to you in the morning and I lay my prayers on the altar. I have no right to be heard, no reason that you should obey me or listen to me, but I'm going to lay it on the altar as a morning worship for you. And what does he do? I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The NIV gets really good. They say, I wait expectantly. This is an image that's so lost in our culture. I'm so glad we sang about this this morning. This is the wording of, of a watchman who's alone at night waiting for the sunrise. And we, we don't get this because we don't really have this in, the, in our culture, right? The only thing we can think of as a night guard is like Paul Blart or something. And that's not what this is talking about at all. This is the, the night watchman. Imagine being outside alone in the cold as it gets darker and darker. And you know that when it's darkest is when you and your people are the most vulnerable. So you're alert, you're in danger, but all the time as it gets darker and darker, you're just looking to the east. You're just looking and waiting for that sunrise. Because when that sunrise comes up, that's when deliverance happens. That's when we're no longer in danger. And David's saying, that's the way I look for the answer to prayer. I expect it, I wait for it, I long for it, because God, I know you'll come through. I know that you're going to answer my prayers. He's crying out to God in desperation for the morning and longing to be heard. Just curious, how do you start your day? Do you roll out of bed in the morning? Roll onto your knees in prayer because you know you need the strength? Or do we roll out of bed and onto social media? Or news? Or exercise? Or, or maybe you just you roll out of bed and... and you're met with immediate needs of family and, and work and just the demands of life so you, you don't get time to pray. Or maybe you're like me. Stay up at night doing whatever and in the morning you're just exhausted and you're just like, ah, the morning's not a good time for me to meet with God. It's just, I'm not a morning person. How do you start your day? I wonder how many of our spiritual battles are lost because of the way we start our day. That we don't come to God in prayer in the morning and we don't find hope in the gospel that he gives us and we walk into the battles of this life prayerless and like walking into the battle unarmed. Or maybe you do start your day with prayer, but do you wait? Do you look for that answer eagerly? Or do you get too busy? 
distracted and you lose out on the incredible grace of seeing God come through. Or maybe you do pray and you do ask, but you do it cynically. It's so easy to creep in and say, God, you're, I know you're busy and you have to think more important things to do, but here's my prayer. I don't expect it to be answered. So, Or do you say, God, here's that prayer again. I don't know how many times I've prayed this. You haven't answered it yet, so it's probably never going to happen. Well, guard your heart against this, this deadly sin. Know that our God loves to meet the needs of his children. And know that when you pray, that God delights to meet your needs when they're aligned with his grace and his mercy and his will. And expect that. Look for that. So David cries out to his God in prayer, humbly, continually, expectantly, because he's living life in this fallen world. But now he's going to praise the holy judge. So that was the way that David prays, the method for prayer. Now we're going to get to what David prays, the content of his prayer. And the first thing he does is he praises a holy judge. And actually what David's trying to do here is he's trying to widen the gap between God and humanity. We so often think God and, and humans are so close. They're so much alike. But David's saying, no, no, we don't understand. God is way more holy than we think he is. And man is way worse off than we think that they are. And if there's this big of a gap, then God, you need to come and do something. David's building his case. He's praising the holiness of God. So he says, God, you're holy, so judge. That's what David's asking God to do. So he praises the holy God in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. David uses a brand new word for God's name here. He doesn't use Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. He uses a, a singular form of Elohim. And this is more of an idea of the sovereign ruler and reigner of the universe. It's the holy judge. That's who he's calling out when he's talking about evil. You're the judge. And he uses a really strong negative when he says, God, you do not delight in evil. You don't even want it around you. You don't ignore it or deny it or trivialize it like us. You don't mock it or laugh at it or think it's funny. Come on, it's only a joke. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but it's kind of funny. This God's not playing around with evil. He takes no pleasure in evil at all. He won't even dwell with evildoers. And it gets worse. Verse 5. The boastful, the proud, the arrogant, the ones who think they can handle this life, the ones who say, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, those people shall not stand before your eyes. Literally, do not belong in your presence. It's like a king saying, a servant wants to come and hear, hear you and, and plead his case, and the king says, no, he doesn't belong here. God doesn't hear the prayers of those that are opposed to him of those that are opposing his will and his work. God says, depart from me. Get away from me. And in verse 5, you hate all evildoers. What? God hates? God hates what? I thought the Bible said God is love, right? It says that in 1 John. I know it. God is love. Yes, the Bible says God is love. But the Bible also says just a few chapters earlier that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. That he's holy and righteous and he wants his people to be holy and righteous. In fact, if God didn't hate, he wouldn't be a very good lover. 
Because in order to love the way that you love is that you oppose everything that would harm the beloved. You oppose everything that would hurt them. I mean, think about this with your kids. You don't say, hey, buddy, you know what? Yeah, go play in the street. That looks like fun, right? I never got to do that when I was a kid. No, we don't do that. It's ridiculous because we know it's not good for them. And God fights and hates all evil because he knows that's not what he made us for. That's not what honors him. Wait a minute. God loves evildoers, people? Well, doesn't God love the world? Doesn't it say that? Well, yes, God loves the sinful world. In Matthew 5, he says he gives common grace to all. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So it's like, okay, well, this must be one of those love the sinner, hate the sin kind of things, right? If you've said that or you've heard people say that, I can, I can kind of get where you would want to say that. Because we have this tension in the Bible that God loves the world, but he hates evildoers. And the Bible doesn't always clearly and perfectly connect those dots, at least from our perspective. But the Bible says a lot about this. The Bible never teaches us to talk that way. And we can never separate a sin from a sinner. Because sin comes forth from a sinful heart. It's part of who we are because of the fall. We don't sin because we make bad choices or because we have outside influences. No, that sin came from us, from our wicked and corrupt hearts. There's no separating the sin from the sinner. That's who we are. Plus, we don't do this with anything else, do we? You don't have somebody that hates you, that does something really nice, your enemy, and your friend says, hey, wait a minute, doesn't that guy hate you? Yeah. Well, he just did something really loving. Yeah. Well, be careful. You can love the loving, but don't love the lover. We don't do that, do we? It doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't make sense because you can't separate the act from the actor. And God will never send sin to hell. He won't. He sends sinners to hell. And that's us in our fallen condition. And it gets worse. Verse 6. You destroy. Wow, David's not messing around. You don't dwell, you hate, now you destroy. This must be really bad. This is really serious sin. You destroy all those who speak lies? Is that what you're expecting? How about you destroy murderers and rapists and horrible dictators? You destroy liars? Anybody ever lied? If you didn't raise your hand, you just did, right? God has every right to hate and destroy us. You destroy liars. Look at verse part 2 of verse 6. The Lord abhors, strongly hates, the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. He compares lying to murdering. He said, these two things disgrace me and I hate it. Well, how can that be? It's because the, the Bible describes God as the God of truth. And when he sends his son, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And his people are people of truth who speak the truth in love because that's the way their father is. And God made man in his own image to reflect and glorify who he is. So when we lie, we say something that's not true about God. We say that God's not faithful. He's not going to keep his promises. He's unreliable, and that's, that's a disgrace to him. It's incredibly personal. Just like murder. Murder is defacing God's image. It's an assault against God Himself. And that's really what sin is. It's shaking our puny little fists in God's face and saying, I'm going to do things my way. 
But our God and David's God is holy and transcendent and righteous. And He's offended by every single sin that we do and our enemies do. And if we're really honest, this is who we are in our fallen state. We're broken and sinful and wicked and deceivers. God has every right to hate us. Now, that's not what you usually hear from our world. It's true. The Bible says that. But now we have another problem. David especially has another problem because he just tried to describe his enemies so that God would judge them. But David's not holy. David doesn't deserve to be delivered because David is just as bad as his enemies. He's bloodthirsty. He's a murderer and an adulterer. And now he is not only in trouble because of his enemies trying to kill him, he's in trouble because a holy God is opposed to him. And how does David solve it? He praised God and put himself in peril again, but now he's going to petition God for salvation through justice. He's going to ask that God would grant salvation through justice for him and his people. Verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Notice that David says he's no different than the wicked. I'm just as bad as they are. I don't deserve justice or salvation. The only reason I can enter your house is because of the abundance of your steadfast love. And he doesn't even say, but Lord, I'm righteous. I'm holy. I tithe. I go to worship. I pray all the time. My psalms are even sung in the church. I'm involved in the grace group. I've been baptized. I never miss family worship. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm an Israelite. I'm part of your covenant people. In fact, I am your anointed. I'm your, your king. I'm the one that deserves to have some help here. I go to the best church in town. I care about your word. I care about doctrine. I'm even confessional. I catechize my kids. I even call out heretics on Facebook. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, Lord, I'm better than them. Yeah, I have my issues. I'm, I'm broken, but I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a decent king. I, I seek justice and the good of others. And that's why you should help me, Lord. He doesn't say any of those things, even though a lot of those things are true of him. David brings no religious credentials before his holy God. Although he has a lot of right to. He recognizes that he's bankrupt before a holy God. And all he can say is, God, I'm yours by your infinite grace and mercy. I'm yours because you, in eternity past, decided to take a rebel like me and say, stop in your tracks, you're mine. And you saved me. You redeemed me from my foolishness. And you won't let go of me. You keep me. You hold me. You refuse to say, I'm done with you, even when I turn to false gods. That's the mercy that I know I can run to. And that's my hope, even though I have a holy judge that opposes me. And that leads him to worship. Look at the rest of verse 7. I will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you, 
Lord, I belong with you. Not like the wicked we talked about in 4 and 5. And that show up in Psalm 1 and 2. They don't get to dwell with you, but I, by your mercy, get to enter into your house. Now there's, there's evidence here that David may be on the run. and he's, he's longing to get back to Jerusalem, back to the place where he can worship in the tabernacle with the people of God. Maybe this is a longing for corporate worship here. But I think there's something much bigger going on here. Because he talks about the house of God and the holy temple of God. And he has heaven in view here. He's homesick. He says, Lord, I, I long to be delivered from this world. To find hope and peace in that final resting place. To worship you in your presence. That's what I want, Lord. That's my hope in this world. And so he asks this, verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, Yahweh, in your righteousness. Lead me like a father leads a child. Like a blind man being led by his friend. Don't lead me with my wisdom and my ways. Lead me in your righteousness. And it continues, because of my enemies. Lord, I'm surrounded. I'm in trouble. They're, they're trying to take me down at every opportunity. So lead me and make your way straight before me. Isn't that a beautiful request? Lord, all I see is disaster. I see my enemies trying to take me out. I know my sinful heart. I am my own worst enemy. And if it were not for your grace, I would become just like them. I don't see a way out of this, Lord. I don't see how I'm going to get there. So walk me step by step through this. That's what he's asking. I couldn't help but think of Pilgrim's Progress when I read this over and over again. If you've read that book... It's great. If you haven't, I encourage you to go do that. But there's, there's a part in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim, our Christian, comes to the Palace Beautiful. And he sees it. He's amazed by it. But as he gets close, he realizes that there are two lions guarding the front. And he freezes in his tracks. He's frozen with fear. And he doesn't know what to do because he wants to go there, but he's stuck. He's afraid. And all of a sudden, a guy calls out and says, Hey, what's going on? Why aren't you coming? And obviously the, the lions are right there. And the guy says, just stick to the path. Just stay on the path that the Lord has given you and you'll be okay. And, Pilgrim, and uh, Christian doesn't know to trust him or not. But he decides to trust him and he follows the path around the lions and finds out that they were chained up the whole time. They couldn't hurt him. And he actually feels a little foolish at the end that he thought that it was such a big deal. Wasn't so often the case in our life where the burdens and the difficulties in life are so overwhelming and all we can look to is our burden. All we can look to is what's right in front of our face. But this plea of David should be our plea to look outside of ourselves, outside of our circumstances and say, God, make your way straight before me. That should be our plea. And usually, this is where we stop. We cry out to God for help. We praise Him for who He is. We ask for that help for saving us. We stop. And we fail to realize that if God is going to save in a crooked and perverse world, He doesn't just lift us out of trouble. The way out is the way through. And for God to make His path straight before us, He's got to eliminate obstacles. So if God is going to save, He's also going to judge He's going to bring justice, not just mercy. 
He's going to bring righteousness and set things right. And that's what David prays for. He's back to the wicked. Look at verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Literally, all they say is lies. Their inmost self is destruction. Notice where their problem really is. They don't need more time or more education or more help. No, their inmost self, their hearts are wicked. That's where that evil comes from. That's their problem, and that's our problem too. They're dead, and we're dead in our transgressions apart from God. Verse 9, their throat is an open grave. This is such a graphic image. And it's one that we're not familiar with. I mean, we live in a culture that likes to dress up death, don't we? I mean, most funerals aren't even open casket. And if they are open, then they're all dressed up like they're normal. Do you know what a rotting corpse smells like? Have you ever seen a dead animal and smelled that? Just multiply that by ten and think of an open grave with rotting corpses and, and gases of death spewing out. And David says, you remember that? That's what it's like when the wicked open their mouth. Stench of death is what comes out of their hearts. Verse 9, they flatter with their tongue. They smooth things out. How does that stench show up? They smooth talk. They lie. They deceive. So interesting to me that David always goes back to the mouth. The mouth is the source and the place where we see all this corruption come out. Paul picks up on that. He actually uses that verse that we just read in Romans 3. I hope you recognized it. Romans 3.11 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. And then he says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. David, those aren't just your enemies. Those are the the people of this world that have this broken and sinful heart. And James picks up on this as well in James 3. Every kind of bird and beast and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in His likeness. We can praise God on Sunday and curse our family on Monday. How can that be? Is it because we have a broken, sinful heart? That's our fallen state apart from God. And so what's David's solution? Verse 10, how do we deal with this corruption? Make them bear their guilt, O Lord. Let them fall by their own counsels. Hear what David says? Lord, let them bear their guilt by giving them what they want. Let their own sin destroy them. Let their own plans and the consequences from those plans destroy them. In Romans 1, this is exactly what Paul talks about when he talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How's that, Paul? God gave them up. He let them have it. To their lusts and their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God says, go for it. 
That's how I'm going to display my wrath and justice and judgment in this world. I'm going to give you what they want. And sometimes that doesn't show up right away. Sometimes the wicked seem like they're getting everything they want and more. But then Romans 2 says, God's going to take care of that too. Romans 2.5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God, turn them over to their ways. Let their consequences destroy them. Let your judgment come down now or come down later. But either way, let them be destroyed by their own foolishness. C.S. Lewis says this really well. He says there are two kinds of people. Those that say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it would not be hell. Isn't what David's saying? Let their sinfulness destroy them. Let their sinfulness bring them to nothing and save your people. Continue on in verse 10. Because of the abundance of your transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. God, don't let their sin go unpunished. And remember, this is not just because I'm offended. God, take them out because they've rebelled against you. They're your enemies, and the only reason they're my enemies is because I'm aligned with you and your will. That's why he's calling for judgment. God's name is at stake. And we should call for judgment for the very same reason. But we have a really hard time praying like this in our culture, don't we? We don't, we don't like these kind of prayers. You may have felt really awkward when Jason was reading the liturgy this morning. God's justice and wrath. I'm like, ah, oh, man, just get on to more happy things. These are what's called imprecatory prayers. They're actually calling out curses or judgment on people that are sinful. They're all over the Bible. There's actually 20 of them in the Psalms alone. And this is not just an Old Testament Israel thing. This is in the New Testament. Peter himself curses Simon the magician for trying to buy the Holy Spirit with money. And remember when we studied Galatians, Paul calls out curses on those that would add anything to the gospel. And in Revelation, we see in Revelation 6, the martyrs, those that have been killed for their faith, crying out below the altar and saying, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is biblical, but it still makes us really uncomfortable. And I think the reason why it makes us uncomfortable is because we're not uncomfortable with the curses. We're uncomfortable with God and his wrath and his justice. I hear people say things all the time like, yeah, it's in the Bible, and if we had our choice, it wouldn't be there, but it's there, so let's just get used to it. No, we never want to get used to it. There's nothing about God that we shouldn't celebrate and rejoice in and worship him for. Let's not get used to it. Let's embrace it and learn to love it because every time God's wrath and justice is mentioned in Scripture, it's meant to be an encouragement to His people. It's meant to be God is going to set things right because deep down we know there's something wrong with this world. Even non-Christians can say that. You can't say that everything's all right and everything's okay in a world where someone bursts into a nightclub and shoots it up. Or people walk into school with guns and take out as many people as they can. There's no law that will fix that or not any amount of weapons that are going to even make that right. There's no way that we can fix that. But sometimes we do get a little taste of justice, don't we? 
but it's never enough. You notice when the Orlando shooter was shot that, that people rejoiced. And there's something really right about that because justice was served. But then you stop and think, well, wait a minute, all it takes is another crazy guy to go shoot some other place up. That didn't fix anything. That wasn't true justice. Have you ever seen the families of the victims of the murderers after they've been executed? They, they interview them sometimes and they're walking out and they say, you know what, I, I thought I would have felt better. I, I don't feel like anything has changed in his death. I don't feel like there's really been justice. We long for justice in this world. And I think some of us long more than others because we've been the victim. We've ministered to the victims. We've seen the effects of sin and depravity firsthand. Now, I don't know if I would have understood this desire for justice and judgment as much as before I started doing foster care. Now that I've I've seen and heard stories about things that have been done to innocent kids, the, the trauma and the pain that some of them carry for the rest of their lives, I've had the severe blessing of of caring for orphans in their distress when they're they're longing to be home with mom and dad. They don't get it. They don't know why they had to leave. They don't know who to trust or where to find hope or where home is. I can't point them to the justice system. It's broken and run by sinful people. I can't even point them to myself. I love them, and I I want to adopt them and care for them and do whatever I can to meet their needs, but I still have to say there's something wrong about this. This is a result of sin, and the only place I can give them hope is pointing to the judge. God will set this right. God will take care of this. I need to encourage in them a longing for justice because that's the only place we find hope. So how do we do this? We could say we need to, but how do we we do this in a fallen world? And I have four quick applications on how we can pray for salvation through justice. Four just quick things I want to say before we finish the psalm. First, recognize you're not the judge. You're not. You're not Israel. You're not the hand of God that we see in the Old Testament commanded to wipe out the nations. That's not your job in the New Covenant. No, in the New Covenant, our weapons are different. Our struggle is against flesh and blood, not against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of darkness in this world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. So David's stones are turned in for the the Word of God. We're doing battle right now. The way that God brings justice and judgment in this world is by preaching the Word of God and the expansion of His church. That's how God will bring justice. When justice is served in Christ, and we point to that. And we don't have to take vengeance for ourselves. then. We can let God be the judge. Romans says, Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, People think that if you believe in a, a wrathful God, you're going to become wrathful yourself. But it has just the opposite effect, doesn't it? If God is going to take care of it, I can wipe my hands of it and say, Lord, you saw it. You're going to take care of it. I can actually be the most patient and loving and kind person because I don't have to deal with it. 
You'll bring ultimate justice because I can't. And so we should pray for justice recognizing and, and salvation recognizing that we're not the judge. Number two, we should pray for justice and vindication for God, not ourselves. For God primarily, not ourselves. Remember how David prayed. God, take them out because they've rebelled against you. The only reason that I want deliverance is because I'm on your side by your mercy. Pray that God would deliver his people because his name is at stake. His reputation is on the line. Pray for God's vindication. Number three, pray for repentance. This is the first and primary way we pray for our enemies. Pray that that God's justice will be served by them running to, to God for mercy. That the justice doesn't land on them, it lands on Christ. Pray for repentance. Pray that God would turn them around before it's too late. And fourthly, pray that the one who will not be turned, the one that will not honor God with their life, will be judged. I could be wrong about this. I looked up a lot of these prayers, but I never saw this kind of prayer happening for like one individual person. I'm not supposed to pray, God, take them out right there. No, David prays even, Lord, get the wickedness out of here. Get the wicked people out of here. Get the deceivers out of here. God, save your people by clearing the way. Let nothing stop the progress of your church. It's a lot like the disciples pray in Acts 4. We're not there yet, but you remember, Peter and John were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. They're thrown into prison and they're, they're threatened their lives. Do you remember what they say? They know what's going to happen. They know the threats. And they pray to God and they say, Lord, you know the threats. They're against you and your church. They're against you and your church. So Lord, let their threats come to nothing. Let it just be cleared out and let your gospel continue to be preached. That's the way we pray for justice and salvation. Clear the way for your church, Lord. That's the way we desire justice and salvation in this fallen world. And lastly, we also have David, after he's crying for God for help, appealing to the holy judge, praying for salvation through justice, he joyfully rejoices in the salvation that God will bring. Look at the last two verses in Psalm 5. But Verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Did you catch the pronoun change? He didn't say, I, let me, let, let my circumstances get relieved. He starts talking about all and them. He's talking about a whole big group of people. Well, keep going. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Well, who's David talking about here? He's actually talking about all of those who take refuge in you, like it says in 11, and all those who love your name. That's the people of God. That's us in Christ. He's praying for us. He's praying for us in the midst of his distress and his lament that we would sing for joy and be glad in the middle of that struggle. Why? Verse 12, for you bless the righteous, not the self-righteous, but those that have been made righteous through faith in Christ. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You protect your own. You're a good father. To be honest, when I, when I first read these last two verses, I thought they were a little weird. I, 
they're beautiful and they're powerful, but they felt out of place. They felt like they didn't belong there because what David is doing is he's celebrating before he's out of hot water. Before he's out of trouble. And he's not just celebrating for himself. He's celebrating for the the entire people of God that haven't even been born yet, some of them, that are going to get themselves into trouble. It kind of feels like he's, he has an early celebration here. And we've all seen those, those highlight clips of the guy who celebrated the touchdown too early and got knocked the fumble down, right? That feels like a lot what Jason, what, um, Jason, what David's doing here. Uh, Jason's not doing that, I hope. Uh, but that's what David's doing here. He's celebrating too, too early, it seems like. But he's actually rejoicing because he, he's acting as if his prayer has already been answered. He's so confident in his God and King and his ability to accomplish his plans that he's looking out of his circumstances. He's trusting in the promises of Christ and the Messiah to come. He's saying, God, I know you'll bring salvation through justice through your Messiah. I know that one day he'll come and set things right. He'll do abundantly more than I can ask and think. And he'll not only deliver me from my circumstances, he'll deliver me from myself. Jesus is the one to come and set things right. That's what he's rejoicing in. And we, this side of the cross, get the privilege to look back at the cross and do the same thing that David did. To rejoice in what Christ did. And we get the privilege of having a bigger and a clearer picture of what Jesus actually did. He didn't come just to judge. He came to take the judgment on himself. He came to live the perfect life, to obey the law, and even pray in the way that we should pray. He did that for us and in our place and went to the cross, and He still ministers and prays to us even now. I want to point you to one more prayer. Turn to John 17. Turn to John 17 real quick. This is the high priestly prayer of Christ, and I want to show you how amazing this prayer is in light of Psalm 5. David prays for relief, for salvation through justice. And his prayer is answered in Jesus. And Jesus prays for salvation, for justice for everyone. John 17. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words. Verse 1. He's just reassured the disciples that he has overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes towards heaven. Just like David, he calls out to his God. Mark says he called out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's crying out to his God, just like David, in his distress. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Jesus is the source of salvation through justice, and Jesus is the one that brings that about. And how does that look? Verse 3, In this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus is saying, tomorrow I'm going to the cross. 
Glorify your son because that's the moment when salvation and justice meet. That's the moment when David's prayers get answered. When our prayers get answered is the cross of Christ. And he could have stopped there. But he kept praying. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of this world. Who's that? That's us. That's the people of God. That's David. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept my word. Jump to verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. They have enemies. I'm not praying for them. I'm praying for my people. But for those you have given me, for they are yours. All are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Make your way straight before them. Do you hear David's prayer there? Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as I am one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them. I'm their shield. I'm their strength. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that Scripture might be fulfilled. Justice was served, God, on Judas, so that God's people would be saved. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the, word has, the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God, don't take them out of the distress. Don't take them out of the difficulty. Walk them through it. And I'm going to purchase all that they need tomorrow on the cross. I'm going to bring salvation and justice so you can faithfully walk them through this. And verse 16 and 17 tell us how. They are not of this world, just like I am not of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God, they're not holy, they don't belong in your presence, but make them holy by your mercy. Let your word refine them so that they can worship in your temple. So they can be your people. And believe it or not, Jesus is praying for salvation through justice, but he's still praying for salvation through justice. We learn in Hebrews that he's interceding for us. He's praying for our good, for our safety, to to get us home safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. And his prayers will always be answered. His prayers will always be answered because He is the King. He's the Son of God. He belongs in God's presence. And one day, He's going to answer prayers completely for justice. Because He's freed us from the the power of sin and the penalty of sin. But He's going to come back and set things right. He's going to establish final justice and judgment. And so we continue to pray David's prayer. God brings salvation through justice in this fallen world. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful and effective. It so clearly shows us an accurate description of ourselves and this world around us. It can so, be so easy to oppose it and to 
be dishonest and not really see the reality that your word says. But God, let us see this world as broken and fallen and unredeemable in our own power so that we can cry out to you, our God and King. Cry out because you're holy and you care about your children and you want good for them. You want justice. And I pray, God, that we would, bring, we would call out for salvation through justice and that your Son, your work of your Son and your Spirit would bring that salvation through justice. He's done so much on the cross. Let us find hope in the justice that He will realize one day when He comes back and delivers us from all sin and evil. Lord, give us that hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.